This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 36 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Episode 36, by the way, is 18 times 2, or 2 times chai, which sort of makes this a big deal in some respects. Last week, I mentioned the body of rules and regulations known as chukat goyim, or darchei ha'emori, laws that prohibit embracing the practices of the other if those practices have some kind of religious significance. Apropos of that, over the years, I've been asked this question more times than I can remember, whether it is permissible for Jews to celebrate New Year's Day on January 1st. It's a question worth discussing, although don't assume you know where this is going. Wait until the end to decide what my answer is. And so, the topic for this week is, should Jews celebrate New Year's? On the surface, of course, the question seems absurd. On the surface, of course, the question seems absurd. New Year's Day, after all, is nothing but the recognition that the secular calendar has moved forward by one digit. At 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, it's 2020. A minute later, it'll be 2021. That's a fact of life we acknowledge by everything we do, from the checks we write, to the computers we program, to the newspapers we read, including even Anglo-Jewish newspapers. So what's the big deal? Well, to begin with, what's today's Hebrew date? Today is the first day of Hanukkah, which means it's the 25th of Kislev. And because this year Kislev only has 29 days in it, not 30, you'll hear a little bit more about that later, that means that next Wednesday is the first of the month of Tevet, Rosh Chodesh Tevet. But it's a safe bet that most people don't know what today's date is, much less that next Wednesday is Rosh Chodesh, or at least they won't know it without consulting a Jewish calendar. So living by a secular calendar has its drawbacks. On the other hand, in effect, we were living by a secular calendar long before anyone ever heard of a secular calendar. As I explained in episode number 25, before the High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah, our very own New Year's Day, didn't start out as New Year's Day, at least not for us. It was the Babylonian New Year's Day, known as Aratisritum, which means the month of beginning. Arat Tishritum was a day of joyous celebration, pagan style, dedicated to the sun god Shamash. It was the first day of the first month on the Babylonian calendar, but not on ours. For us, it was the first day of the seventh month, and it had no name. Most of our months, apparently, had no name. Today, we call our seventh month Tishrei. But that's only because the Babylonians called their first month, which began when our seventh month began, Tishritum. The sixth month on our calendar is Elul. But that's only because the Babylonians called the last month of their year, Ululu, which started at the same time. Our month of Shavat comes from the Babylonian month Sabatu, and so on. Our first month is Chodesh Ha'aviv which merely means the spring month, 
Other people in biblical times called it Aviv is up for conjecture, but we don't call it Aviv. We call it Nisan. And we call it Nisan because the concurrent Babylonian month was called Nisanu. That's what I mean by we've been living by a secular calendar for so very long. And that includes reckoning the start of our calendar year on what the Torah calls the first day of the seventh month, while we almost completely ignore the real start of the Jewish year, meaning the first of Nisan in the spring. As to why all this came about, I refer you back to episode number 25. This brings us back to our question, but phrased a bit differently. If Jews have celebrated a secular New Year for most of their existence, managing to turn that secular New Year into a religious one, why shouldn't they observe the secular New Year's now? On the surface, as I said, the question seems absurd. But lurking beneath the surface, there's much to consider in deciding whether it's okay to celebrate New Year's Day. To begin with, the situations are entirely different. There were legitimate concerns our religious leaders in Babylon had that led them to turn the first of Tishrei into Rosh Hashanah. Most important, even though they fiddled around with New Year's, the Jewish calendar remained the calendar we used. On every day, everyone knew where they were in that calendar. That's not the case today. Ask someone what today's Hebrew date is, and we're likely to get a blank stare. That's the difference between then and now. And being totally ignorant of our calendar is one reason why not to celebrate someone else's calendar. Still, as I said earlier, New Year's Day is nothing more than the recognition that the secular year has moved forward by one digit. There's nothing pagan in that, certainly. So that body of Chukat Goyim laws I mentioned are irrelevant, and so is the extension of that body of laws to the religious practices of Christianity and Islam. Well, that's not quite true. But before I explain why, I need to make something very clear. Judaism does not consider Christianity and Islam to be pagan religions. Consider, for example, how the chief rabbi of Lemberg, Poland in the mid-19th century Rabbi Yosef Shaul Halevi Nathanson ruled, quote, It is a general principle that wherever the Talmud or the commentaries speak in derogatory terms of heathens, the reference is to the ancient pagan nations that did disgusting perversions and did not believe in divine providence. They are the antithesis of the nations existing today, meaning Christianity and Islam, these nations observe their religion. They are men of high ethical and moral standards who maintain a judicial system that punishes lawbreakers. Although their religion is far removed from our faith, God forbid that we should entertain even the slightest thought of disrespect. At present, when these nations follow the tenets of their religion, it is self-understood that we must promote their welfare and treat them with respect, unquote. Nothing that follows here is meant in any way to show disrespect to Christian practices. It's simply to point out that Christian practices are not our practices. 
To return then to my comment that it's not quite true that Chukat Goyim restrictions don't apply to the New Year's question. That calendar that's moving up one digit has a name, and it's not Hallmark or Walmart or American Greetings. It's called the Gregorian calendar because it's the calendar established by Pope Gregory XIII nearly 439 years ago. And the new year is not just 2021, it's A.D. 2021, Anno Domini 2021, the year of our Lord 2021. In fact, New Year's Day, the octave of the nativity in Christian terminology, meaning the eighth day of Christmas, is technically known in the Eastern Christian Church as the Feast of the Circumcision. The Catholic Church also used that name for January 1st until it changed it in 1960 to the Solemnity of Mary. Until then, it too called January 1st the Feast of the Circumcision. Guess who's Brit, whose circumcision that refers to? In other words, in a sense at least, New Year's Day really is a religious holiday. The calendar Gregory XIII revised was originally commissioned by Julius Caesar somewhere around 46 BCE, and we'll get back to BCE in a minute, which is why it was known as the Julian calendar. There was nothing religious about it until the year 525, when a monk named Dionysus the Humble added this postscript to the numbers, Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, or the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. It took another 300 years for that change to fully catch on, but it remains in use to this day, even though there's a more neutral postscript available that's not offensive to non-Christians, CE for Common Era. There's also BCE, as you just heard, which means before the Common Era. But BC, before Christ, still dominates. AD and BC are the operative ones. It's true, of course, that Gregory XIII's calendar change was done for practical reasons, but it was for practical religious reasons, and specifically to keep Easter in its proper spring setting. The Julian calendar was way out of whack in Gregory's day. Whoever actually created the Julian calendar for Caesar overestimated the length of a solar year by 11 minutes and 14 seconds. That doesn't sound like much, but by Gregory XIII's time, the Julian calendar was off by 12.7 days. Judaism, by the way, has always had a way of keeping Pesach, Passover, in the spring month. We actually have six versions of our calendar. There are three normal years, one short, one long, and one regular. And we add an extra month in our leap years, that also is divided into a short, a long, and a regular year. A short year is one day shorter than a regular year, and a long year is one day longer. That's why the month of Tevet this year is 29 days, and another year it might be 30 days. Intercalating our calendar is how we keep Pesach in the spring. But back to Gregory's calendar. That his calendar has a religious orientation can be seen by the continued use of B.C. and A.D. instead of B.C.E. and C.E., as I just said. We also can see the religious significance in how and when nations adopted the Gregorian calendar. 
Catholic nations did so almost immediately, of course, because the Pope said so. Protestant countries, for the most part, viewed it as a Catholic religious change, and so they resisted adopting it for 100 years or more. Britain, which abhorred anything coming from Rome, stuck with Caesar's calendar for another 170 years. Japan and Egypt waited about 300 years to do so. The Balkan states and Russia, which followed the Eastern Rite, didn't sign on until just over 100 years ago in February 1918. Most Muslim states tolerate it because it's the calendar the rest of the world uses, which is also our excuse, but they preferred their own, whereas we, for the most part, ignore ours. Aside from the prohibition against emulating the religious practices of the other, Jewish law tells us to avoid even the most innocent behavior if there's merely the appearance of apostasy in it. The Talmud, in the tractate dealing with pagan worship, Avodah Zarah, offers several examples of such innocent behavior. Bending before an idol to remove a splinter from one's foot, for example, or bending before an idol in order to pick up a dropped coin. An onlooker might think we're bowing to the idol, so we shouldn't do that. Also included in that tractate's example is any action that could give the appearance of kissing an idol, such as stooping to drink from a spring in which an idol has been placed, or drinking from fountains shaped like people. These rules may sound silly, but there's nothing silly about them. We live in a world in which appearances are everything. Just because we live by the secular calendar doesn't mean we have to celebrate doing so especially if an onlooker thinks we're celebrating a religious festival. All that being said, there is another side to this coin. To begin with, just like most Jews don't have a clue what the Jewish date is, most people of every stripe and persuasion have no idea that there's any religious significance whatever to January 1st or to the secular calendar as a whole. So, just because it's the calendar of the other doesn't mean we can't use it. The Torah, in fact, itself seems to support the notion that the other, even a pagan other, much less religions that grew out of Judaism, may have things worth our emulating. We see this most clearly in Exodus chapter 18, in the story of Jethro. He not only worshipped pagan gods, he was actually a priest to one of them. We see this most clearly in Exodus chapter 18, in the story of Jethro. He not only worshipped pagan gods, he was actually a priest to one of them. He was also Moses' father-in-law. When Jethro saw how Moses spent very long hours, day in and day out, trying to resolve disputes and answering questions about what's right and what's wrong from a Jewish law standpoint, he gave his son-in-law advice on how to structure a judicial system to help Moses govern although Jethro also told Moses to check with God first. Not only did God allow Jethro the honor of creating Israel's judicial system, but the very Torah portion in which God appears to all Israel is named after him, Parashat Yitro, the portion of Jethro. That in itself is accidental, or maybe not, we name our Torah portions after one of the opening words in it, and the weekly portion containing God's personal appearance on Mount Sinai 
begins with the announcement of Jethro's arrival at Israel's encampment at Mount Sinai. However, there's considerable rabbinic agreement that the story of Jethro and the judicial system he helped create is chronologically out of place in Exodus 18, which means it was put there deliberately, and that's telling in itself. In post-biblical Judaism, there has always existed a division of opinion regarding the wisdom of the other. In the early days of the Talmudic era, that wisdom focused mainly on Greek philosophy. Philosophy is somewhat of a deceptive word as it relates to things Greek, since everything Greek from that period was rooted in religion, even sports. Studying Greek philosophy then meant studying Greek religious texts. That's the basis of a controversy we find in another Talmud tractate, Menachot. A man named Ben-Dama once asked his uncle, a prominent sage named Rabbi Yishmael, whether he, Ben-Dama, having studied the whole Torah many times over, could spend some time studying Greek wisdom, which almost certainly meant Greek philosophy, which almost certainly meant Greek religion. His uncle quoted him part of a verse from the first chapter of the book of Joshua, which Rabbi Ishmael said was a commandment to be taken seriously. Here's what he quoted, quote, This book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, unquote. In other words, he said, we're commanded to study Torah day and night. So Rabbi Ishmael said to his nephew, quote, Pick a time that's neither day nor night, and that's when you could spend time learning Greek wisdom, unquote. Put another way, the answer is no. Rabbi Ishmael would have been correct if, in fact, that verse in Joshua was a commandment. Only another sage, Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani, corrected Rabbi Ishmael's understanding. Said Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani, quoting the sage Rabbi Yonatan as he almost always did, quote, This verse is neither duty nor command, it's just a blessing, unquote. A blessing is not a halachic statement. It's just a statement. And if there's no commandment to study Torah day and night, then some part of the day or night could be used for studying Greek wisdom or anything else. In another Talmudic tractate, we're told that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, a codifier of the Mishnah and, towards the end of the second century, the head of the community in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, said at one point, quote, Why use Syriac, a form of Aramaic, why use Syriac in Eretz Yisrael when you could speak either Hebrew or Greek? To which another sage, Rabbi Yossi, added, Why use Aramaic in Babylon instead of Hebrew or Persian? Unquote. As this piece of Talmud continues, the suggestion is made that when one studies the language of the other, one also studies the works written in that language. The question is then raised, quote, Was Greek wisdom really prohibited? Did we not hear it said of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, of the thousand youths who were in my father's house, 500 of them studied Torah, and the other 500 studied Greek wisdom, unquote. If Rabban Shimon's father, Rabban Gamliel, who in his day was the head of the community in Eretz Israel, taught his students Greek wisdom, that would seem to settle the question. More objections are raised, however, and unfortunately the Talmud doesn't resolve the dispute in a clear statement, but it does resolve it anecdotally. 
It tells tales of sage after sage engaging in learned discussions and debate with non-Jews about Greek philosophy and even matters of religion. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's own teacher, the second-century sage Rabbi Meir, frequently engaged in such discourse. The debate continued long after the Talmud period. It was one of the causes of criticism of Maimonides, the Rambam, who demonstrably was well-versed in Greek philosophy, as well as other matters. Not everyone agreed with the Rambam's open espousal of learning from and about the other, especially if the other was an ancient Greek. Today, of course, most authorities have no problem with Jews studying the sacred texts of the other, regardless of who that other is, so long as the one doing the studying is firmly enough rooted in his or her own sacred texts. Greek, Latin, and even Arabic are taught at Yeshua University, as are the philosophers and thinkers who emerge from those cultures. In my freshman year, I attended Yeshiva University, and one of my classes was a serious course in the Christian Bible. Ironically, there's only one area in which the fear of the other continues strong, thereby leading to a shunning of the ideas and philosophies of the other, and that's when the other is us. We can study the Summa Theologica of a Saint Thomas Aquinas, but how many non-Orthodox have ever delved into Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's halachic man? We can study City of God by a Saint Augustine, but how many Orthodox Jews have ever peered into Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's God in Search of Man? We've come a long way since the days of the Talmud, not all of it in the right direction. In any case, I doubt that 99.95% of people we'd ask would even know the secular calendar has any religious connotation, much less that it's called the Gregorian calendar and named after a pope, no less. So should a Jew celebrate New Year's? By all means, celebrate the secular New Year's. But remember that we have our own holidays and festivals. Even as we prepare to celebrate what really is someone else's festival, we ought to commit to relearning the whys and wherefores of our own special days and how to celebrate them. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org 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 and email me please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe. And Chag Uim Sameach, a happy Hanukkah to all.